Let's turn to the book of Matthew, chapter four. We're gonna be looking at verses 12 through 25, and I will read these aloud as you follow along in your copy of the word of God this morning, since it is a, a longer passage. It says, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pain, those oppressed by demons, having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great clouds, great crowds, <laughs> and clouds too, I suppose, followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of our Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we beg you this morning for your illumination on our hearts. We know that apart from your spirit, we can not only not understand the, the, the interpretation of this passage, but Father, even beyond that, we, without your spirit, cannot see the significance of it for our lives. Father, we depend on you for every move, every breath, every being, every, every step we take. And every breath we have, every song we sing, every prayer we pray, every, every step we take is a gift of your wonderful grace to us. Father, we worship you and we thank you for all the great and precious promises that we sang about this morning. You are truly a great God. And we ask you, Lord, to be glorified this morning in us. And not just this morning, but as we walk out of here, may we have a higher view of God and a greater commitment to Christ and his lordship than what we had when we came. And Father, I pray that even though many of us are grieving in our hearts for the loss of a dear friend, we know that because of some of the very things you're gonna tell us in your word this morning, 
that she is in your presence, reunited with loved ones, but most of all, reconciled to you because of your grace that she accepted by faith alone. So Lord, I pray that you would grant that same hope and promise to one who's here this morning who may not know you as their savior, who does not have that hope. They're grieving as the world because they don't really understand the promises you have for us. I pray this morning would be the morning you would draw them to yourself. And may we be sanctified and washed by the preaching of your word. Move me aside so that your spirit will take your word to make us more like your son to the praise of your glory. In your name we pray, amen. We are beginning a new series in the Gospel of Matthew. We, uh, we preach verse by verse here. Uh, we're preaching through the Gospel of Matthew right now. We've taken a break for a couple of weeks just because we came to the end of a major section, but now we're coming to a new major section that uh, whereas the first section we saw the introduction of the king, the arrival of the kingdom, this morning, we are going to begin to see kingdom life and what it looks like. I shared with you when we first began this study that the Gospel of Matthew, as best as we can tell, was written from the city of Antioch, and it was written to the Antiochian Christians in order to instruct them in the ways of discipleship. There is a lot of interesting things that we see in the Gospel of Matthew that is kind of geared toward that purpose. And, and so that's the purpose that we're following in this book, uh, what I believe the original purpose for the writing of the Gospel was, to teach us how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that it is something that encompasses all of our lives and encompasses everything that we do. And a big part, in fact, the major aspect of living as a disciple is living in the kingdom of heaven, being a citizen of the kingdom. Matthew makes a lot of references to the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom more than any other gospel writer does. And a big part of that is because is that you and I, as disciples and believers in Jesus Christ, we are not only citizens of a country in this world, we are, and we certainly are thankful for that, but we are also citizens of another kingdom. We have another home. We have another eternal place of our dwelling. And even now, once we are saved, we begin to live out those aspects of God's kingdom in our life. And the gospel of Matthew teaches us how to do that. And so we're looking at kingdom life and what it means to live life in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what this series is all about, kingdom life. And we're going to see, or you might say the life of a disciple. I can't remember. I kept going back and forth between those two. So I can't remember which one I landed on for all the media. But, uh, but anyway, we're, we're talking about the same thing, the life of a disciple and kingdom life. And what we're seeing this morning is the summons to kingdom life the summons, the call to kingdom life, that Christ calls every living person on earth to be a part of his kingdom. I was watching a YouTube video um, not too long ago. It was from a very popular church that shall not be named, 
just so you know, we don't sing their music. But anyway, so, uh, but we, uh, I was watching a video from this church and they, they do something that is pretty cool. They, when they, ha- they have baptisms on Sunday night once a month and they always record kind of the testimonies of those that are gonna be baptized and then they baptize them. And okay, that's pretty cool. But uh, one, of the, one of the people who uh, came up to be baptized, they always ask, why are you being baptized tonight? And guys, it is a virtual parade of confusion for why Jesus gave us baptism. Let me, if you wanna see how confused the world is about baptism, just watch these videos. But just to give you one example of, of the kind of confusion I'm talking about, this one young lady was asked, why is she being baptized? And she says that I know no, God is calling me to be a warrior for the animal kingdom. I know that I am going to lead armies of angels to protect his animals, and I cannot do it without his help. That's why I'm being baptized. And by the way, they baptized her. And so there's a lot of talk about calling today and, and the importance of finding your calling. Everybody is really talking about this and, and you need to find your calling in life. You need to find your purpose in life. You need to do all of that. In fact, according to one leadership guru named Kirsten Strand, she writes that I have learned that ignoring a calling or not finding your calling in life can lead to depression, anger, frustration, and a deep dissatisfaction with life. Talk about pressure. And you know, so often when we talk about the calling of God and we talk about what it is that we are called to, we treat it kind of like an Easter egg hunt where, where God has just kind of hidden his callings out there. And it's up to us to try to turn over every stone and try to find what his calling is for our lives. Well, beloved, God does not play games with your life. And his calling is not hidden. His calling is not, is not under a stone somewhere where you need to find it. His calling is right here in the scriptures. Every person is called to something bigger than self, something to commit to. And my prayer this morning is that by the time you leave this morning, you will leave with a firm commitment to the calling of Christ's lordship over your lives. That you will leave with a firm commitment to the calling of Christ as your king, to live in his kingdom. That is what every single Christian is called to. And so let's flesh this out a little bit, uh, looking at, just to remind you where we've been. You know, the first part of Matthew chapter four is dealing with the temptation of Christ. And one of the things that that temptation reveals is asking the question, what is it that we are gonna be most loyal to? Are we going, every temptation to sin is a question of loyalty. Are we gonna be loyal to, to Christ and stay true to him? Or are we going to give in and serve ourselves through sin? and through sinful means and through ungodly means. That's, that, is the, that is the temptation. Every sin we commit, we make that choice. And so the question is, is what are we ultimately loyal to? That's what Christ is showing us. And he fought our battle for us. He remained absolutely loyal to God the Father in order to be sinless, in order to rescue us 
from our sins. We saw that in Matthew chapter four. But now the question is, is what is it that we are to commit to? We saw what we're to resist, but now what are we to commit to? And that's the question this morning. And the answer that we give in this text is that we're gonna see that we must commit, if we're gonna be part of kingdom life, then we must commit to Christ's lordship over us. We must commit to Christ's lordship over us. You say, why is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're gonna give three reasons this morning to see that. Three reasons why we need to commit to Christ's lordship. And so looking at, let's look at the first one. You ready? Here we go. Verse uh, 12, beginning from 12 to 16, we see the first reason that we need to commit to Christ's lordship is because Christ brought the kingdom to us. Christ brought us the kingdom. Look what it says again in verse 12. It says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea and in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, some people, the way Matthew words this, he withdrew to Galilee. Some people think that Jesus is concerned for his safety. You know, John had just gotten arrested. And so now Jesus is withdrawing to the Galilean regions in order to uh, kind of preserve his own safety. I don't really buy that for a couple reasons. Number one, because Herod was over Galilee. So it seems to me that if he was running from Herod, Herod Galilee was the last place he should have gone. All right, so that's the first problem. Second problem, and, and here's the bigger issue is this. Galilee was no safer for him. You remember what happened in Nazareth? He preached his own hometown. They tried to throw him off a cliff. So Galilee wasn't any safer for him physically. My hometown tried to do that to me one time. Not for holy reasons, but anyway. And so, um, so yeah, there was no safer for him. And so I don't, really see the, I don't really see that that's the significance here. What I do see the significance is in verse 13, because Matthew says that he comes to Capernaum, leaving Nazareth into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And the question you might wanna ask is, is why does he mention these two areas? The, these areas were not even known by those names anymore by the time of Jesus. This is a completely undated, outdated way of referring to the area. It's kinda like uh, if we were to refer to Southside and we're gonna say, you know, the area of Southside, you know, no, 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 no. They're an incorporated city now. And so when you drive through Southside and you're driving 55 miles an hour, a highway speed limit, guess what? They're a city now. You better drive the city speed limit. And there's a state trooper out there who loves to hang out and catch those speeders. So, uh, so you better be careful with that, right? Because we're using outdated information. Zebulun and Naphtali are outdated names for this reason. So for this region. So why in the world does, does Matthew mention them? In fact, this is about the only place where these two names are even referenced in the entire New Testament. So why is that? Well, he tells us the significance in the next verses. He says, so that it was what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And he says here, and he quotes Isaiah for verses 15 and 16. 
You see, Jesus is not running from his, for his safety. He's not, uh, he's not running from the Pharisees, as another scholar says. He's not doing any of that. What he's doing is he is fulfilling the significance of his ministry. In fact, let's look at that. Isaiah chapter nine, you're gonna wanna turn there. Isaiah nine, verses one and two is what Matthew is showing us. And he's showing us why this is significant. And you may remember when we talked about uh, the Emmanuel prophecy, you may remember that we covered this text because the Emmanuel prophecy begins in Isaiah 7 and it goes all the way through Isaiah 12. And this is right in the middle of that. And you may remember that because of Ahaz's refusal to trust God, God told him that I am going to send destruction. Yes, you are going to be rescued by Assyria, but Assyria is gonna turn around and they are going to destroy your land. And they did. And they almost took over Jerusalem were it not for Hezekiah's faith. You remember that? And so in chapter eight, Isaiah is prophesying all of this destruction, all of this desolation, that all of this famine, there's not gonna be enough food, there's not gonna be enough resources, people are gonna live, and when Emmanuel is born, he is gonna live in poverty because of the lack of faith as demonstrated by Ahaz. But things change in chapter nine. Because he says in verse one, for there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought contempt, watch this, to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way by the sea. Watch this, verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And he goes on, but notice this leads into verse six. Why is this great deliverance coming? In verse six, you know this verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Eternal Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. You know all that, right? And so what's the point of that? Why mention Zebulun and Naphtali? These these were two areas in northern Israel. And when Assyria attacked Israel and took over and demolished the northern kingdom, they began their campaign in Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay? That's where God's judgment began. That's where the curse started. And what God is saying in Isaiah chapter nine is from the very place that my judgment came to you, from the very place that Isaiah began the, con or excuse me, that Assyria began the conquest against you, so in those very places, the promise of God is going to start. The very place where the curse began is gonna be the very place where my deliverance begins. The very place where Assyria began their attack is the very place where God is gonna reclaim his people. The city of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, is located in Zebulun. The city of Capernaum, where Jesus moved to, is located in Naphtali. That's the significance. 
You see, the point is, is that the very place, Jesus's boyhood home and Jesus's base of ministry, all of that is fulfilling this promise that from these two regions, God's deliverance is coming. That is where the offer of the kingdom of God begins. Do you see that? And so he brought us the kingdom just as he promised he would in Isaiah chapter nine. Isn't that cool? And so I remember a, I remember a story from a young preacher. He was preaching at a church and, and uh, afterwards uh, he was doing the shaking hand thing and everybody was leaving. And maybe you've heard this story before and uh, this old widow came to him and she was pretty destitute and, and pretty poor, but out of her appreciation, she offered him a, a $100 bill. He said, oh no, no, I can't take that. Please, please, I can't take that. And, and they haggled back and forth, but she finally gave up and put it back in her pocket and said, well, I appreciate you. And, and she walked out. And um, the pastor of the church saw this and he went to the young preacher and he says, do you realize that you just insulted her because you refused to accept her gift? You robbed her of a blessing from God, right? And that's insulting. It can, it can be insulting to offer a gift to someone or someone offers you a gift and you refuse to take it, right? We've experienced this before. And so how much more insulting must it be that God himself in human flesh has come and offered us the kingdom only to have us refuse it? How insulting must that be? How blasphemous must that be? We don't have to imagine how that must grieve him. We don't have to imagine that. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Look at Matthew chapter 23. You, you'll need to look there. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Matthew chapter 23. We don't have to imagine how it must grieve Jesus for us to refuse the gift of the kingdom. We see it right here. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning over whom Christ is mourning those words. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning, maybe you've been here, maybe you've been a member of this church for decades, maybe you're, maybe you're new to the church, maybe you're, maybe you're a teenager or maybe you're a child or whatever, and how many times Jesus is crying over you this morning saying, oh, and just insult, and just insert your name there, how I would have come to you, how I would have gathered you into my arms, how I would have embraced you, how I would have accepted you, but you were not willing. Is there anyone here this morning that Jesus is calling you with those words? And so we must commit to the lordship of Christ, beloved. We must commit church to his lordship 
To do so is, to not do so is, is nothing less than blasphemy. You can't call Jesus Lord and tell him no in the same sentence. If, you know, we believe in God's sovereignty here, we, we celebrate God's sovereignty. But beloved, if you're using God's sovereignty as an excuse to disobey him, you've got a really weird view of sovereignty. It doesn't work, right? We must commit to his lordship over our lives. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's look at that. Why must we commit to his lordship? Number two, because Christ summons us. He calls us to the kingdom. And we're gonna see this in two different ways in verses 17 through 22, a, a very famous uh, call here. He's calling his first four disciples that we see here in Matthew. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew. And then on down the line, we're also gonna see James and John, the sons of Zebedee. By the way, if you go on that Israel trip and you, go to, you can actually go to Capernaum, you can actually see it, you can actually walk in it. The synagogue is still standing and it's pretty cool. And there's actually a little pillar that says, belonging to Zebedee and his sons. Pretty neat. And so, uh, but they were, they were apparently were well off and they were successful fishermen and his sons are in the boat with their father when Jesus calls them and all of them are fishermen. And Jesus, Jesus introduces this general call to all people to the kingdom. He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's it mean to repent? It means to turn, to turn away from anything that is not the kingdom of heaven. It means turning from sin. It means turning from self. It means turning from idols. It means turning from false beliefs. It means turning from false doctrine. It means turning from whatever is not of the kingdom of heaven. We are called to repent. What does this look like? Well, we see these two examples. Beginning in verse 18, Jesus comes and calls his first disciples, Peter and Andrew, brothers. He says simply this, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. By the way, do you see the balance there between, God, between our responsibility in God's sovereignty and his call. Follow me, there's responsibility, there's response. I will make you to be fishers of men. That's sovereignty, right? There's no conflict between those two. And so Jesus calls his disciples here and tells them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, both, both sets of brothers, immediately they, they drop everything and they leave everything to follow Jesus. Now, the first chapters in the Gospel of John kind of suggest to us that Jesus had had previous ministry in this area. Uh, this is not the first time, more than likely, that they're meeting Jesus. But the fact is, is that they, Jesus calls them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men and they immediately come. They immediately follow. 
By the way, fishers of men, that, that's a very um, interesting metaphor. They're fishermen, right? And Jesus uses kind of their, their way of life to describe to them how he's going to take their way of life and he's going to reorient them toward the kingdom, right? And I cannot tell you how many evangelism seminars I've been a part of. I cannot tell you how many preachers I've heard preach this. And admittedly, I've done it myself a couple of times. And I, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that evangelism is all about fishing and they give you all these instructions on how to have just the right bait in order to get the fish to bite. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah? And by the way, I mean, it's not necessarily wrong. I mean, it can definitely be taken to heretical extremes, right? You know, the church growth movement and all this stuff that kind of happened in the 90s. Now, you know, now the church growth movement seems tame compared to some of the stuff we're seeing now out there. But, but there's, I mean, there's, there's a little truth to it. But guys, let me tell you that that metaphor has absolutely nothing to do with this passage, Nothing whatsoever. This passage is not telling you that you must have the right bait in order to get people to accept the gospel. That is not what this is about. You say, how do you know, Randy? Because they were professional fishermen. And professional fishermen, they don't fish with pole and line. What do they fish with? Nets. And so the fishing that's involved here does not involve bait at all. In fact, the fishing that's involved here is pretty much standing out all night on a boat, chunking out nets and pulling them back in over and over and over again. So what's the point of the metaphor? Because what Jesus is telling them is understand that this is how these men earned their living. This is how these men, uh, this is why they got up in the morning. This is what they did all day long. This was the orientation of their lives. This is what they thought about when they went to sleep. This is what paid the bills. This is what provided for their families. All of this was true of their being fishermen of fish. And now Jesus is saying that I'm going to take that and I'm going to reorient it to where now, instead of finding your significance in what you do, I'm going to teach you to reorient your lives to my kingdom. I'm going, the reason you get up now is now gonna be my kingdom. The reason that you go outside your home is now gonna be my kingdom. The reason that you do everything you do is now going to be my kingdom. Jesus is not calling them to a new hobby or a new pastime or a new way to relax on Saturday morning or a new way to relax on Sunday morning. <laughs> He's not calling you to that either. <laughs> He's not calling you to a new hobby or a new pastime. Jesus is calling us to a radical new orientation to our entire lives. He's calling us to the kingdom. He's calling us to a new way of life. 
You know, sadly, this is what the culture thinks of religion. In fact, have you noticed how the word is, wording has changed in the commentary and the talking heads on TV? You know, they don't, they don't refer to it as freedom of religion anymore. They refer to it as freedom of worship. Have you heard that? Because our culture only thinks of religion, only thinks of Christianity as a hobby or a pastime, something we go to on Sunday morning so that we can relax and so that we can kind of gain something for ourselves and then go out and live the rest of our lives during the week. And sadly, there's a lot of Christians who are fulfilling that idea. I pray no one in this church is doing that. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, is even as your pastor, sometimes I do it. May God forgive me. But we all do it, don't we? And that's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to a new orientation, a reorienting of our entire lives to where now instead of being focused on ourselves and focused on the things that we want, now we are focused on kingdom priorities. Now we are focused on kingdom values. Now we are reflecting kingdom truth. Now we are living lives as citizens of God's kingdom. That's what Christ says when he says, follow me and I will make you to be fishers of men. He's calling us to a new citizenship as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Whereas before you lived for yourself, you lived for your values, you lived for your priorities. Now Christ is calling them to live to the kingdom of heaven through the lordship of Jesus Christ. Will you commit to the lordship of Christ over every aspect of your life? Will you commit to his lordship and be his disciple? Will you submit to the king or are we going to keep on insisting taking the crown off of his head and trying to put it on our head and ruling our own lives? Boy, we make a mess of things, don't we? In fact, you want to know where Christ is not king, what areas of your life Christ may not be king over? Follow the chaos. Where's the chaos in your life? Chances are, that's a good place to start. And so, it's not a Sunday pastime. It's not a hobby. Church is not what you do when there is literally, absolutely nothing else to do. Then, well, okay, I'll come and worship God. Beloved, God is so much more worthy than that. Don't give them your crumbs. Don't give them your leftovers. Give them your best, your absolute best. Be committed to his lordship because he is worthy. Amen? Is he worthy, church, of our lives? Man, he's worthy of so much more. So we must commit to Christ because he calls us to the kingdom. And then finally, because he fulfills the promise of the kingdom. He fulfills the promise of the kingdom. Uh, verse 23, so he went out throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, every affliction among the people, so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he 
healed them. He went throughout doing all of these three, teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease, every affliction that was brought to him. By the way, pay very close attention to that word all and compare that to what you see on Christian television today. Nobody left from Jesus's presence unhealed. And their, and their amount of faith was not the deciding factor. In fact, we find, we find healings in, in the gospels where faith, where the individual's faith wasn't even involved. He healed them out of his sovereign purpose. And so compare that. And by the way, he didn't need stage lights. He didn't need a truck full of, of equipment to come. He didn't need a Rolls Royce Benz. Actually, is it a Mercedes Benz? I don't know, I'm poor. So <laughs> he didn't need any of that. He didn't need five-star hotels. He didn't need any of those things. He didn't need a fancy glow-in-the-dark white suit either. And everyone who came to him was healed. Everyone who came to him, all of the diseases, all of the demon afflicted, all of those who were oppressed, they all came to Jesus so that his fame spread throughout the region. What's happening here? Jesus explains the significance of his healing. And I have this on the board, Matthew 12, 28. Why, why does Jesus heal as a part of his message? Here it is. In, a, in an argument, and I, I can't give you the whole context, but in an argument he's having with the Pharisees, here's what he says. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, watch this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, he is healing to show us that the presence of the kingdom is here. You see, what does the Old Testament promise is gonna happen when the kingdom of God comes? The lame will walk the blind will see, the deaf will hear. There will be a new quality of life. In other words, beloved, what we are seeing here, every healing that Jesus gives is kind of a mini gospel. It's kind of a mini gospel, a mini sermon to show you the healing that is available in the kingdom of God. Not fully realized now, no but will be realized when we come into the presence of God, either at death or his return, will be realized in the resurrection, will be realized when the fullness of our salvation has come, we will have new bodies, we will have glorious bodies, we will be like Christ. That is the promise of the kingdom. And what Jesus is showing us is that he is the fulfillment of those kingdom promises. That when the kingdom of God comes, culminated, we will see the restoration of creation. And English translations kind of do you a disservice here because that word healed, not in this case, but in most cases where you see the word healed, it's actually the word sozo, which is the word we get soteriology from. Small group, what are we studying? The doctrine of soteriology, right? What are we studying? the doctrine of salvation, right? In other words, the very word that is translated healed is actually the word saved. 
And every, every healing in the gospel is kind of a mini gospel to show us that the kingdom has come. And what we're seeing is the reversal of the effects of the fall. That the fall and the curse upon the world, you are born of dust, to dust you will return. In the presence of God, in, in the fullness of his kingdom, that curse is removed and we will live forever in the presence of God, worshiping him for all eternity as we were created to. Beloved, Miss Sherry is a little closer to that today than we are. And that's the hope we have. This promise gives us that hope. We see the healing. We see the restoration. We see the removal of the curse. We see it all because Christ has come. And in his kingdom, he provides healing in our lives. The effects of sin, disease, death, everything else will be removed from the earth. Jesus is demonstrating in a small way, but what will be in a large way in the future, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the one who brings that promise. All of that will go away. The weakness of our bodies, failing medical devices, legs that don't carry us where we want to anymore, aches and pains, tears and sorrow, all of that will be reversed through the gospel of Jesus Christ when he comes. Jesus fulfills that promise. And therefore, beloved, we must commit to Christ's lordship. We must be willing to give up our lives and give our lives to him fully, totally, unconditional surrender. Matthew chapter 20, 20, 16, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus then told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Watch this, for whoever should save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Beloved, do you want to find your life this morning? Do you want to find your life? You will find it in the kingdom of God through the Lordship of Christ. So we looked at these three reasons. Christ brought us into the kingdom. Christ calls us to the kingdom and he fulfills the promise of the kingdom. And so... What does that look like? What are some of the ways we must commit to his lordship in our life? Just think about some things here. Number one, Paul tells us in Romans 12, he says, present your bodies. In other words, present your whole self as a living sacrifice to God. Every morning, every day, and maybe some days every hour. Maybe at work when your boss is mad at you for some stupid reason. Maybe in that very moment, commit yourself and submit yourself all over again as a living sacrifice to God. This day does not belong to me. It belongs to my Lord to live through me. Number two, set your affections and your mind on eternal things. 
Paul talks about this in Colossians 3. He says, set your mind on things above, not things above below, not things of the earth. For example, when you're, when you're tempted to get angry at that coworker, you're tempted to get angry at your spouse or anyone for that matter, tempted to get angry at someone in the church, ask yourself, is this an eternal perspective? Is this something I'm gonna care about a million years from now when I'm in the presence of God? If it's not, then maybe there's a good chance it's not really worth that much energy right now. And so set your heart on eternal things. Set your heart on things above. Set your affections on them. Number three, wherever you are, pursue Christ and know him. Paul mentions in, in Philippians chapter three, forgetting everything that has gone before. And not that I have attained it, but forgetting those things in the past, I now press forward to the goal of the mark that is Christ Jesus, my Lord, knowing him and him crucified. Commit to knowing Christ and him crucified. What are we pursuing? Are you pursuing the scriptures every day? And one suggestion I give is when you read the scriptures, Read, uh, ask the Philippians for eight questions is what I call it. You say, what is that? Well, glad you asked. Miss Becky, uh, say, what, what are those, Randy? I'm glad you asked, Becky. Look in uh, Philippians chapter four, verse eight. It says, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Beloved, every time you read the scriptures, anywhere it is, ask yourself, what is true about this? What is noble about this? What is just about this? What is pure about this? Just go through those questions and ask yourself and then, and then reflect on those throughout the day. That's one way you can meditate on the scripture. We talk about meditating on scriptures here. That's one method that I teach. And so ask the Philippians for eight questions. And, and things that happen to you during the day, ask those questions. What is true about this? What is noble about this? What is commendable about this? What is honorable about this? What is worthy of praise about this? In other words, pursue Christ by giving yourself an eternal mindset, a God-centered mindset. You know, so many times in churches, we're so good at telling you what not to look at and what not to think about. Here's some things for you to think about. Here's some things for you to look at, right? And so, and then finally, be passionate to obey the scriptures. Every time you read the scriptures, I don't have this one on the board. Every time you read the scriptures, James 1, 24, don't be hearers only, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. James says that anyone who looks at the holy law and walks away without change is like looking at an image, a picture, a mirror of themselves and forgetting what they look like. They walk away and they do nothing. Sometimes when I see people in Walmart, that verse comes to mind. And so, what does that mean? Brother Don gave me this poem. It's a popular poem. It was written in Ann Lander's uh, um, column years ago. 
And he asked me to, it's really meaningful to him and he asked me to share this with you. It says, just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts the most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. Some people think that you're a straight shooting chum and call you a wonderful guy, but the man in the glass says you're only a bum if you can't look him straight in the eye. He's a fellow to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you clear up to the end, and you've passed your most dangerous, difficult test of the guy in the glass as your friend. You may fool the whole world down the pathway of years. It's cut off, but it says, if you've cheated the man in the glass. James says, anyone who looks in, at the perfect law of God and walks away unchanged is like someone looking at themselves in a mirror and not correcting the things that they see wrong. Beloved, let me ask you a question. We looked at the mirror of God's word this morning. Are you gonna walk away a doer? Or are you gonna walk away a hearer only? That's the question I ask this morning. So if you're here this morning and you know there are things in your life you need to change, you've been living for yourself, you've been living for your own values, you're, you're not living in the kingdom and reflecting kingdom values, I beg you this morning, Lord, be called to the kingdom of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior. Beloved, make no mistake, you are called as well. Christ has issued the call to you. Every single person on earth is called to be citizens of the kingdom, called to respond to the gospel of Christ. Jesus was perfectly man, perfectly God, who came and lived a perfectly righteous life, earning the righteousness that God requires of us. And then he went to the cross and he died as a substitute for our sins. And he rose three days later and now he's at the right hand of the Father offering himself to you as a deliverance from the penalty of your sin. He's calling you, he's inviting you to accept him as your savior. And the only response is to turn from your sins and trust, believe in Christ alone and his work on your behalf. And you can be part of the kingdom this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, I would love to talk to you. We can't have a normal altar call but I will be here. And if you need to talk to someone, you can certainly do so. Talk to one of the lady, ladies if you're more comfortable speaking with one of the ladies, you can do so. Miss Bobby is in the back, Miss Vanita, so many others. We invite you to come. Will you, will you answer the summons to God's kingdom? Whoever you are this morning, will you answer his call? And will you be part of his kingdom? That's the question we leave you with this morning. Our Father, we come to you and we ask you to take these words, Lord. I know that my explanations are weak. I know that there's so much more that could be said and there's so many better ways that it could be said. But Lord, I pray that you would take my weakness and you will be magnified 
glorified through my weakness. For it's in our weakness, your strength is shown and your power is made perfect. We ask all this in your name as we stand together.